Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Hey everyone, today we've got uh, Abby Bushell, so excited. Uh, She does so many things. She's a hypnotherapist, uh, EMDR therapist, which uh, works with trauma. She has a background in the corporate sector. Um, She has had quite a life. Uh, It even, you know, might even supersede my own crazy life. Uh, She was with a family of seven, Um, amazing work ethic, had to work from a really young age to sort of do her part. Um, She's uh, experienced domestic abuse of relationships, bullying as a child, uh, severe postnatal depression with her daughter, culminating in having a tumor and being told that she had six months to live. Now, there's an interesting thing that she can actually appreciate that this, this message of six months to live has actually for the first time at 44 given her full permission to live her purpose and sort of break the rules and do whatever she wanted to do. So there's this real blessing in in having that experience. Welcome to the show. You're going to love it. Welcome, everyone, once again to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. Today, I'm privileged to introduce Abby Bushell. Um, we, we met uh, not too long ago, a couple years ago, in, in our life coach training. Uh, so she's, if, if anyone's ever done that, uh, it's, it's an absolute journey of emotions and all sorts. So we know the real, the real us, I would say. Welcome to the show, Abby. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Okay, so within the last two years, Abby's amazing. So she's had a whole corporate sort of background. Uh, and just in the last two years, she's moved away from the corporate world. Um, she's previously managed teams uh, to follow her passion and to help others. So she's relaunched herself as a life coach and a hypnotherapist, which I find fascinating after reflecting on her own life and the struggle she has overcome. So we've got the expertise, but we've also just got that personal story, which I'm so excited about. Abby, fill in the, fill in the blanks for us um, uh, about the work that you do and, and what are you passionate about at the moment? So for me, at the moment, I'm working with a project called Alliance Support Coaching, which is working with victims of antisocial behavior. So for me, um, I get all the heavy-duty cases because I'm really passionate about releasing the emotional tank. So for me, I use a tool called EMDR. And if you have never used it, please try it. And, you know, I could meet up with you and show you exactly how it works. So it's called Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. And what it does is it doesn't take away the events it takes away the emotional attachment to that event and so when people are struggling with um, everyday life so so today that someone might be struggling it will connect to a past event so an emotion that they feel wherever it is whether it's in the head in the heart in the stomach if they think of another event that happened and it will go back and back and back that same feeling would have triggered by something that's very similar. And so it means that when things happen in our past, we put a lid on it because that happened, we didn't like it. Um, So it'll be a traumatic experience and we get on with our lives. But in the end, that tank 
becomes so full that you can't cope with it anymore. So when every day life things happen, that lid, like they say, flip a lid, gets flipped and we go from one to 10 in no time at all. So what I like to do is release that pressure tank so that they can deal with everyday life and almost normalize things that they don't enjoy or are struggling with or finding quite difficult. How, how interesting. I've definitely heard of uh, EMDR used for trauma, but it's interesting that in day-to-day life, it can seem like people absolutely lose their cool in some way or another over the smallest little tiny little shitty life thing, right? Yeah, um, yeah. But it's really, you're saying it's that context and that history that's actually showing up? Yeah, because everything we do in life, um, how we know whether we don't like something is when somebody asks you to do, say, somebody to say, stand on a stage and I want you to speak, which I had to do recently, and uh, I absolute panic attacks, not my thing, but I do it because I have to. However, you go back and go back and go back and you'll find that it will come from a first um, experience of standing up in the classroom and reading from a book. Now, I have mild dyslexia. I couldn't read anything. Everyone just thought I was a bad speller, um, but I was a phonetic. Uh, speaker and speller so but no one picked that up till I was 30 so I was just well if I can say a little bit stupid so I'd stand up it would be my turn I'd dread them saying Abby's turn to stand up and speak her page and do it really awfully so for me public speaking will go back to that emotion from when I was what seven eight years old that's, and it's the same thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So fascinating. I um, I do a lot of public speaking, and recently I was at the University of Bedfordshire, and I had to speak in front of sort of academics and mm-hmm. and sort of professionals. And oh my god, I thought I'd sussed out this this public speaking thing, but as soon as I had sort of professionals in my audience or my idea of like education experts. All of the experience of being a stupid, uneducated, because I was homeschooled and then didn't have an education when I was younger, all of that came up. What right have I got to speak to education experts about fucking anything, right? Exactly. Then the lid's off and you're one to ten and you can't cope with it and you become a mess. And that's exactly what EMDR is for, to remove that emotion from the past so that you can deal with today. And it's amazing. I've seen so many changes, even myself. I've had it myself and I find it amazing because it's so quick. And yeah, it's yeah. yeah, you're talking 15, 20 minutes later, you're feeling so much better. You're just re-educating someone. Yeah. So, so, I mean, so what are, who are your sort of ideal clients for, for EMDR? Is it just people who want, realize they're being triggered? Is it people who've had some severe trauma? You know, it's, it's everything. So post-traumatic stress syndrome isn't just for people that have been on the front line at war and had to kill people or seen their best friend die or had a illness which was life-threatening. It's almost lots... Uh, a, a, a big trauma is also made up of lots of small traumas. So from a child, uh, a rejection, uh, being told that they can't do something um, which they felt really passionate about. These, these are all tiny little traumas. But when you have tiny little traumas that all keep building up and building up, they become a big trauma, which then means that that emotion is so full up that you can't release it because you've had all these little tra- traumas that you haven't been able to process that you now can't process a great deal without emotionally attaching yourself to anything that you don't like very much that's fascinating and it, and it informs maybe the conditioning around what you think is possible in your life yeah. so you avoid certain things because you've had that trauma so you must not be worth something or you must not be capable or have a right to maybe go down the path you wanted to go down 
Yeah, well, you know, I've worked with people very recently where they've had their leg amputated um, through being an alcoholic, um, and they've actually gone through the rehab. They've they've become you know dry, and then they go for a normal appointment, and uh, and they are told just during a normal appointment that you've got an hour to live, and because of whatever they have in their system, they can't be put to sleep. So they're awake while they're being operated on, and they're listening to the doctors all talking very casually while he's watching the clock go to the almost to the hour thinking they're not taking my life too seriously because they don't think it's worth me living because I was an alcoholic and I have nothing and they so then when they're having these other feelings every time it triggers back that they're worthless because they still have that feeling of lying on there and listening to the drill coming down or whatever they use to take the leg off and so that they're trapped in that emotion that they're they're worthless because that's how they've basically perceive that that occasion when really maybe that's how people are when they're in surgery they are casual they are relaxed they have to be because they're doing things to save people's lives but he was there watching the clock to the hour to the minutes yeah 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 yeah. and that sticks with you and but you know when we did the MDR it released a hell of a lot for him it took away that pressure it gave him back his self-worth so for me, you know, we, I deal with very heavy cases and I also deal with things where, you know, people have had emotional breakups. They're, they're very jealous of situations and they can't move on from it because they have and they've been left, as we know, in a separation for three years. Someone's been planning it, so they're ready for the separation. And then the other person's just been told and they've got to get on with it. And they're not given those three years to catch up. Yeah, and then that yeah. person goes off and starts their new life. So EMDR helps just remove all those emotions so that they can cope with and make decisions which are good for them. So powerful. So, <laughs> so um, obviously you've, you've had a whole life story yourself. You've, had, uh, you've been through the corporate sector. You, you've made some changes recently and, and you've got a, a personal story around adversity. Um, t- just take us back and give us a little bit of context to, to how you were raised. What were the expectations growing up? Do you think that, you know, your parents or the education system prepared you for for the real world and what it's really like? Do you know what? I, If you'd asked me this uh, probably three or four years ago, I probably would have blamed everybody in sight. But do you know what? As I say to my daughter... I'm an adult to look at, but I'm still a child inside. I don't know how to be an adult, but I'm trying to be an adult. I mean, a parent rather than an adult. And my job is to keep you safe and keep you going. And I'm doing my best, which doesn't necessarily mean that I'm doing it right, but I'm doing my very best. And I'm learning as I go along. And now I realize that. So I don't blame my family, but I look back and I think, yes, I had a hard upbringing. I'm from a very large family. I'm one of seven. Um, Mom and dad self-employed, worked extremely hard. We had a large Victorian house, which I think everybody thought was probably paid for by the state, but my parents did everything to keep the house. They worked seven days a week. They had a, she was a childminder, my mum was as well. Um, She also had the office in the kitchen. We had a playroom at the front, so we were always detached because you couldn't make a noise during certain hours. We were working from a very young age. We had paper rounds around the whole of the Wandsworth Borough. We used to do leaflet drops. We used to uh, stuff envelopes um, we'd pack kites if there was a job coming. We'd wash cars, do children's parties, everything. We were trained to be workhorses. That from, was from how old? Uh, well, I'm the second oldest, and I would say we had paper rounds from a. We used to do the Guardian paper round, which was the free round that literally goes 
miles. I yeah. mean, when I show my daughter the round now, she just looks at me and says, I would have just said no. That's how <laughs> things changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so how old would I say I've been working? Well, I've always looked after my sisters and brothers. I can imagine if you're the second yeah, oldest so, of seven. Yeah, especially as my parents have had to work. and My mum's always been in the office, which was the kitchen. So when we got back from school, our job was entertaining each other and the other children as well. Yeah, keeping that, people out of the way. Yeah, so I, I think secondary school probably is where it started. Yeah. So, so for me, we were a very competitive bunch. Um, to get attention, you had to be good at something. So I was very artistic uh, at, to start with, and I was even at adult education art classes, which impressed everybody from about the age of 11 and bringing back my uh, pictures to show everybody. And then it worked out that my siblings, as they grew up, were even more artistic than I was, which uh, blew that one out of the water. Oh. So I gave up. Yeah. Um, so, so I think my next thing that I found I was really good at was... Uh, cleaning and helping because I my siblings were very clever that probably a good three or four of them were all straight A's I wasn't and um, my sisters on either side of me the one above and the one below were very pretty very slim always got the same outfits for Christmas I didn't because they wouldn't suit me because I was blonde chunky glasses ear problem you name it like we laugh about it saying I was the runt of the litter because there's only a uh, my mum fell pregnant with me three months after having my birth my the, the older sister right. so I would say to her, you didn't put the vitamins back in your body, it's your fault, which is you know, <laughs> a joke, but not really a joke. Yeah. And my dad, I'll always remember him sitting there one day and telling everybody, you're going to be a model, you're going to ru- rule the world, you're this, you're that. And he said to me, and you're going to be a good housewife. And he didn't mean that in any other way other than kindness. Sure. It, for me, that, that was my job. I, I, I was going to be a great housewife because I wasn't good enough for anything else. And when I went through, I started um, training to be a counsellor first. If my dad read my journals, wow, he was blamed for everything just for that one line. So you held on to that. It really shaped you for a while. I did. I did. I haven't now because I think I gave up the journey of being a counsellor because for me, it felt like I, I was just blaming because obviously I didn't see the process through. And coaching resonated so much better for me because it was, if you don't like the title, lose it. And stop looking backwards, what's ahead of you? And that was much better for me. So, yeah, that's probably, yes, we had a hard upbringing, as as in we were workhorses. I'd be doing the laundry at the weekend, uh, going down to laundrette. But none of my sisters and brothers were because I was the helpful one. Right. So you formed some kind of identity with that. Oh, yeah, 100%. I remember when my – because there, there's five of us with a year's gap between each other, top five. And then my parents decided to have another go um, when I was about 14. I think my next second to last brother arrived. And I remember Hoover in the house at 10.30 at night waiting for them to come home with the new baby. And looking back now, I think I was probably just worried about my, losing my identity was the new person coming back going to be the cleaner. <laughs> I don't know. So, yeah, but it wasn't seen as a victim role. It was, oh, Abby will do that. Abby likes doing that. So I just did it. And did that shape sort of, because I know you have a great work ethic, did that give you your, your work ethic, just that from the cleaning to the paper rounds to everything, that the culture within your house? Yeah, we're all workhorses. We all, all, all seven of us. No, not the last two as much because they didn't have the same lifestyle as us. Sure. The top five, yes, we are all workhorses, and we would all go to work even if half our leg was hanging off, and that's how we've been brought up. <laughs> and then, and, and I know we've talked about this before. What's it like to stop and do nothing? 
do you know what? I don't like it. Right. There's a happy medium, a happy medium somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Tapping is, is rubbish. It, it's when that, that dark cloud comes for me. I, I cannot stop. And, and I know when we were speaking before and the recording started, Christmas, or oh, it nearly got me, but it didn't. Because now, you know, we, we get these things in place now, tools which help us and we recognize. But I do know stopping is one of my biggest problems. It is. I mean, that's when my mind gets busy. That's what, like uh, with negativity. That's when uh, things can go dark or feel overwhelming. And there is something unspoken about Christmas. As much as we're all um, successful, happy people that even have all these tools, uh, it was the first Christmas for me uh, since divorce. And my kids were sort of split between I didn't have them Christmas Day. It was a lonely time and it was hard to just stop and it was hard to ask for help. It was hard. It was just really hard. And I, I, and what I said to myself in sitting with those sorts of emotions was that this is what feeling fully alive is. It means I have the opportunity for full joy, creativity and happiness, but also that I have the capacity to feel, actually feel and not numb out uh, through addiction in my case, um, uh, pain, loneliness and those sorts of feelings. So I'd try and put that perspective on it. Yeah, well, you know, someone said to me very recently, um, it's okay to dip your the toe in the water of depression. And I thought to myself, I, I, it held with me for ages. I mean, I was told this probably back in April, and I keep thinking, why don't I like that saying? It's almost like you're saying, come and take me if you can. And mm-hmm. then I thought, do you know why I don't like it? It's because for me, depression, it's, it's the same as being an alcoholic. Once you've been depressed once, for some reason, your stupid mind decides that it's a great trick. Yeah. And so you need to find a way where you can maintain it and get rid of it when it arrives. And for me, it's like a bacteria. It's, it, it's found an environment it likes, and if you feed it, it will grow, and it will grow at such a speed that you don't understand how you got from one to ten in such a short period of time. So I think now, looking back of it, if I look at depression like mold or bacteria, poking your toe, dipping your toe just to see whether you like it and how it feels is definitely not the way forward because I'm with it you doesn't, no, it doesn't take long for it to take hold. And why make life even harder than it already is? And that's through self-awareness and, and sort of knowing yourself. So um, talk us through uh, your experiences of adversity. So we've had a bit of context of, of you growing up. There were definitely some challenges. But when I refer to things sort of like a rock bottom or, or a crash, I mean, what comes to mind for you? Oh, my God. I don't know where to start. What There's doesn't? <laughs> I think I'm just going to have to just flip for a few quickly. Give us, give us a flavor. Yeah, jump in. Yeah. Okay, so because I was 11 months younger than my older sister, she was my best friend, really. So I didn't need friends. Yeah. And so when I got to uh, nursery, I remember I, when she left, I refused to go anymore because, you know, I'd, I'd built such a bond with her. But she hadn't with me, so she, off she went off in the world, and she was fine as anything. And so I refused to go to nursery. I stopped going, um, as I can remember, and I was just at home with my mum until it was my turn to go to school. So when I got to school, I, I had no idea how to make friends but I was desperate for them because I realized now my sister didn't need me or or want me around she had her own friends so I I couldn't make friends full stop and I remember my mom used to say you're so desperate to make friends that's why you can't make friends and I I didn't I used to sit on the the bench with the helpers learning how to knit and holding the hand walking around the playground and I just didn't make a single friend I hated it and then I got to secondary school of course I've learned those skills to make friends so still no better um, got secondary school, didn't like it. And unfortunately, I felt 
in, into the um, arena being a victim, and I did it so well. So, unfortunately, anybody that wanted to make a remark, um, unfortunately, I was there ready to take it. So, I became a victim very quickly, which allowed every single bully in the school to realise that I was ready to play. So, for me, uh, I hated school, absolutely hated school. Tried to work through my groups of friends, didn't really make any great friends with um, anybody other than one towards the end and and for me I was just desperate to be liked and because I was one of seven I I was quite loud Mm. um so that probably put people off um I was always trying to be accepted or to be maybe to be admired there's all sorts and I'll always remember this for me was the biggest thing and I hope he doesn't listen to this because I don't want him to think that he got that he actually made a big impact I think he'd be quite pleased with himself but I remember kissing this lad at school disco first kiss um so I must have been about 13 and I was quite unattractive at school compared to my sisters as everybody kept pointing out to me and he was so embarrassed that he'd kissed me that I remember him having a bet with this girl called no I won't say her name I'm sure who she is (laughs) And back in them days, you're talking back in the 80s, five pounds was a lot of money. And he said, I will prove how disgusted I am at the fact that I kissed Abby Bushell, that I will bet you five pounds that I will never, ever speak to her again. And he didn't. And he didn't. And he didn't speak to me again. And to me... When did you find out about the bet? Probably later. Oh, no, no, straight away. Everyone knew because he had to let everybody know that he was so embarrassed that he kissed me. So it had to be a public thing and publicly sort of shame you in a way. Everybody knew about that bet. So then the bullying got worse. And then, you know, you become more of a victim because people are feeding that that Mm. you are a victim. And that stayed with me for years, years. And I remember as I left secondary school, a couple of years later, I was queuing to go into a club and he was in the queue with friends. And because obviously the bet was he wouldn't speak to me until we left school. So now I'm 18, 19, found makeup, learned how to dye my hair, slimmed down a bit, looking as attractive as everybody else in my age group. And he tried to have a conversation with me. And I remember like almost laughing, thinking it was all silliness. And I, and I thought, and I couldn't, I couldn't have a conversation with him. And I remember thinking, I don't think you realise how much that has changed my life. Even yeah. to this even to this day. I mean it was horrendous that he did that. But looking back, he probably thought it was just really funny. How how has it impacted you even to this day or as an adult? You know, I think to this day, not now, because obviously I've done all this training, but up until my 30s, I always felt extremely unattractive. Um, So he really affected my self-worth. And I'd say also through growing up knowing that my sister was very attractive even my mom I remember going to parents evening and someone said to me once why is your mom so good looking and you're not so I think just lots of things and my sister had a friend and I remember my mom kept saying just take Abby out let her come with you and Hayley was forced to take me and her friend said I'll always remember this I bet you must wake up every morning being so upset that your sister's so good looking and you're not it's just awful. So everything was based around looks about if you're not good looking enough, you just wasn't worth being around. So, and so that probably fed your, you know, your sense of, you know, identity around your helping and cleaning or whatever it was you did. Cause you were like, Hey, at least I get praised yeah. in somewhat, in some yeah, way for this. Yeah. <laughs> and I carried on cleaning. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> 
so, so, so what so where did that lead what, what yeah, else so okay so next so we get ma- I get married to the boy next door um so you know when you're at primary school you think right I'm gonna have two rose bushes and two children a boy and a girl and here he is so off yeah. we did went off and got married um probably for the wrong reasons um and I had a child that didn't want to sleep but however Looking back, I didn't realize then that I realized now that I had postnatal depression. So this baby didn't want to sleep. She had to have cranial osteopath um, at the beginning because uh, she had a bad delivery. Uh, She then had colic. She then had teeth and she had her first tooth at three months. So she didn't sleep. And I worked full time and I kept my house sparkling clean. And I had no support from anybody. And uh, But they used to say to me, if you had a baby and you lined it up amongst hundreds, you would know your baby. And I used to think, I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I don't, this child, I I don't like her. She doesn't like me and we'd go to parties and she'd scream the whole time and people would say give her back to her mom and I think what are you giving her to me for she's not going to shut up when I hold her <laughs> and I, I just felt awful but I couldn't ask for help because my mom had seven children she worked full time she you know she was a workhorse I couldn't say I can't cope with one so I just carried on I started um not sleeping at all I'd be walking around Tesco's because it used to be 24 hours and and go shopping at night time I'd come home and turn the washing machine on at lunchtime um go back to work but everything was just keep going keep going keep going and then my marriage ended um, for lots of different reasons. And that's when it all started to fall apart. So I started the self-help, St. John's Walk, 5-HTP, sleeping tablets, binge drinking, waking up with no memory most weekends when she was with her dad. Um, but because I was happy drunk and I was fun, no one stopped me. Um, so I carried on. And then I fell into a relationship, which was the first uh, domestic abusive relationship. Um, because, first of all, he was a support. And he was there. He was going to help me. I mean, I'd fallen into uh, temporary accommodation uh, for people that are basically homeless. So he was helping me to go and find a home again uh, with him going forward with the future. Um, and that ended really badly because obviously the victim mentality fell back in. The domestic abuse was awful. And it ended up with police involvement and injunction. And I couldn't ask for help because I was really worried how if I was to involve one of my brothers what would happen to them if they did something that would jeopardize their future end up in prison so you know I I couldn't so I just muddled through and I remember I used to drive along um and I remember I used to drive on the A24 and it's have lots of winding routes and big walls and I used to think if I just put my foot down now that that would be it I, I could just call it a day and then I just look over at my daughter and I think, I can't do that. She hasn't chosen to die. And I'm responsible for her life. And so she was my saviour, really, because she made me function. So I became a functioning depressive. Big smile on my face, outwardly, inwardly, just wishing it would all be over. And then when that ended, abusive relationship number two. Same pattern, extremely abusive, very nice to start. So and and like, you're still a mother. You still have yeah, responsibilities. Yeah. Exactly. So I I carried on going. But unfortunately, you know, every day was I was finding it harder to hide the fact that I was an emotional mess. So at that point, I went for help. And that was about four or five years ago. And I was given uh, antidepressants, sertraline for 10 months. When I first went on them, I remember I would 
literally go to the doctors every week or every other week and all I'd be asking for is when can I come off them when can I come off them because they made you so ill to start with and I carry on can I just can I just pause you and you know there's this theme here of not being able to ask for help and and not showing and you know kind of hiding the shame of what was actually going on in your relationships and all of that but at some point you go to the doctor. How, how hard was that to, to say that, I mean, were you, were you able to say this, I think this is depression or did you just fall apart? Were, were you just desperate? What, how, what led you to that? I, was, I, I couldn't speak without crying uh, to, to anybody. It got to the stage where my eyes would water with any conversation. And for me, that was more important to hide that than it was to, to admit to the doctor that I was a mess and depressed and I needed their help. Okay. It was the more the disguising. It was the more I was okay when I was functioning and I could smile and people didn't know. That that was fine. That dark secret was my secret. But when it became... It started leaking. Secret, yeah. I, I, like people now are seeing I'm falling apart. This isn't, this isn't helpful. I I need help now. So then they gave me the antidepressants. And I think it took about six weeks of being on them that I actually all of a sudden would walk outside and it was almost like someone had turned the light on and be like, oh my God, it's not so gray out here anymore. And I started to enjoy doing things again, but I didn't want to be on them. Probably that thing of I don't want help. I've got to do it myself. My family is strong. I need to be strong. So even though they were, that's interesting just for our listeners that at times medication can have the, the, that sort of impact where it balances things out. Yeah, it, 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 it was amazing for me, but I also didn't want to be on them forever. And so I remember one of my sisters who, who likes, uh, she, she would like anything that makes life any better. She'll try anything. And she said, go up, you know, because they kept trying to put me on a stronger drug. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm staying where I am. I'm quite happy. The side effects are awful. I can't, I'm only short, like five foot three. I don't, I obviously can't cope with anything stronger. And so I stayed put on a quite low dose. And she kept saying, go stronger if they're offering stronger. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not so I fought it and then when it got to about six months I felt better I felt like me again I felt like I was in my 20s before the the post uh, natal depression set in I, I just felt like me everything was okay again not perfect but it was okay and so I went to the doctor and said you know I'm ready to come off them I'm better and she said no no you need to be better for a while the minimum you can be on them is a year six months to a year is what we would tell anybody and so I thought okay I'm going between so I waited for 10 months and I didn't go back I weaned off them it's so slowly I think it took me about three months like that's smart yeah I'd read up and I realized that coming off them was as bad as going on them and I even booked a holiday and I'll always remember this I had two puppies at the time and I had I'd promised to make the roast potatoes to help my mum out with the large family we have and I just thought you know what I'm getting to that stage where I can't cope again I need to get away and on Christmas Eve I dropped the dogs off to my mum's, which was so selfish, but I had to with the bags of potatoes and said, I'm really sorry, but I'm going on holiday tomorrow because my daughter's at her dad's and I can't do this. And she just let me go. And I remember lying on the beach on Christmas Day and everyone texted me. And I remember my brother, one of my brothers, Daniel, he sent me a message saying have a nice Christmas wherever you are mm-hmm. <laughs> I, just, I thought it was just so amazing that like no one actually really knows where I am right now and I am being so selfish for the very first time in my life but I'm doing it for me and it, it helped me because the sun the relaxation knowing I was being selfish it made me stronger and it allowed me to get through the symptoms of coming off them which was just as bad as going on it, it really is it, it really is, is hard. I can totally see why people stay on them. 
because the coming off them is just as hard as when you're at your lowest moment. You you read up on it. I don't think there's enough education out there. And when I was on them for postnatal depression, our stories are quite aligned um, for, and I was on them for six months. Really for me, the the present in my life was alcohol and and nobody said, maybe you should cut that out. Um, And I didn't like them because when I drank, it made me violently sick, uh, which was obviously it was the antidepressant that had to go, not the alcohol, right? Um, And I remember just running out and not going back to the GP. So essentially, I got off antidepressants cold turkey. And I know, worst decision of my life. It must have been two weeks of absolute violent hell in my head and my body and my mind, you know. Um, But but, no, I didn't know. I was just so ignorant and, and wasn't reading up and was just in such a state of survival and fight or flight, you know. Um, but also, I think the message is very important that sometimes medication can just give you enough kind of light to learn how to cope with things or to access therapy or to, to kind of help yourself get through it. Or go, it going on a, a beach like you. <laughs> yeah, well, I think it gives you a blanket because I remember, I will always remember my sister relaying to me what my mum had said to her. And because every time I'd have a conversation with my mum about, you know, you can't afford the mortgage, what are you going to do? This, that, and the other. And I kept saying to her, do you know what? I'm not worrying about it right now. That's all I kept saying. And I remember my sister saying to me, my mum just said that she can't wait for you to come off those pills because you're not worrying about anything, but she's awake all night worrying about all the things that you're <laughs> And I thought that was exactly it. But anyway, so what antidepressants came off and then back to the story of the bosses I had all around me were amazing and they could see something in me and they basically helped me move up to where I should be. Um, and my, I remember my boss at the time saying to me, not when people go sideways, you've obviously got a story. Um, tell me it. And I remember telling her saying, this is enclosed walls. And she said, yes. And there was a little bit of bullying going on amongst management. And she said, I'm really sorry. I remember her moving all her books in front of her. And she said, I'm really sorry, Abby, but I have to take this forward because no one should put up with that. And I'm not going to tell you the story because I let it all go and I don't want to get people in trouble to this day. And so she said, "Um, but I will take this forward. And I said, if you do that, you will make me mentally ill. So I'm asking you not to. And she said, well, what else can you do? And I said, I need to get promoted to a higher grade than I left because I would have stayed in that job forever to make it worthwhile leaving. And so she said, OK. And I did. I got promoted right the way up right. to a job I couldn't stand. Oh. <laughs> but I did it because I thought, you know what, this is what I wanted. But I didn't like it. Um, and then, unfortunately, one particular day, I had really bad pains um, and I went to the doctors and they said that you have uh, appendicitis, you need to get to hospital. And so I was selling my home at the time. And so I thought oh, I'll quickly go to work and drop off the paperwork to the solicitor <laughs> to make sure I delay the house sale in case I'm in hostel for a few days. And so I did that. And then I went to work to finish off a few important things. And everyone kept saying, Abby, you need to get to hospital. I was like, I know, I'm just doing my job first. <laughs> so I did that. And then I got to hospital and they said, uh, we, we don't know what it is, uh, go away and we'll see you if it gets worse. And so two days later, basically, I woke up in intensive care being told that I had a tumour which was attacking my gallbladder, my ovaries, my appendix and my bowel, had half my bowel removed and had six months to live because um, it was such an aggressive tumour. And I just remember waking up in intensive care. My mum walked in and she kissed me on my forehead and we aren't an affectionate family. And I thought, what? She kissed me on the forehead like I'm dying. And she said, did you hear what the doctor just said? 
And I said, I don't think he's talking to me, Mum. I had appendicitis. He's talking about the bowel and removing and tumours. And she said, no, he's talking to you. I said, no, no, no. She said, I'll just go back and get him. Because I said, well, tell me what he said. And she said, no, no, I'll go and get him because she couldn't tell me what it was. And so the whole thing was all like a complete blur. But for me, I had booked in the training course that I met you on uh, to go on in the April. And I was due, I went into hospital on the Wednesday initially. And on the Friday was when I was supposed to start the training course, but I'd already done a transactional coaching course. So for me, I was just doing this as a top up and I was all doing my best to change my career. So this wasn't the changing career process. So uh, I said to my mom, why are they slowing me down? I was supposed to be on a course. I've now had to delay it a month because I've paid it and they'll only let you delay a certain amount of time. And she said, I don't know what, the, maybe they're checking to see if you really want to do it. Maybe that's what the gods are doing to you. And I was so angry thinking they delayed me. I'm not going to be able to get on the next course for another three weeks I didn't once think I was dying because the only questions I asked the surgeon was did you get it all which he said yes and am I in a bag call me vain and he said no so (laughs) that's all I needed to know I just needed to get home and so uh, but but you I've just heard and it's sticking in my mind you have six months left to live yeah, I know, but I, I, I just blanked the lot. I, I really didn't believe it was true. As far as I'm concerned, he got the lot, and I, I, I hadn't done in life what my life purpose was. So, And I have a daughter at home. I'm a single parent. All I've got to do is get home. So there's my workhorse ethic back in place, leg hanging off, get back to work. And it's an avoidance tactic, isn't it? Like if we can just yeah, keep yeah. busy enough, we can avoid how we truly might feel, fear, oh, all the yeah. rest of it. 100%. And don't you worry, it came and bit me on the bum a, a year later. <laughs> I'm sure so uh, yeah, so uh, I went. I got back to work within a month. I was on your training course three weeks later, yeah. um, and I was. Uh, well, I shouldn't have done anything for three months uh, after you've had a laparotomy, but I didn't know that at the time. Um, call that the NHS aftercare, but that's another story. <laughs> and I was mowing the lawn at three weeks. Uh, I was at six weeks. Yeah, oh, I was 100% getting ready to start racing those horse races again. So. Yep. So then I got, I always remember I was sitting at work, it was a year later and I must've been so tired and it got to the stage where I'll be mowing the lawn and suddenly, you know, when it cuts out or you're picking up the grass and then you go to start it again, I suddenly forget how to start it. I'll be thinking, Oh my God, have I got dementia? I, I didn't think for one second that it was burnout. And I was thinking, Oh, that's weird. I say to my mum, and because my dad's a bit of a drinker, he kept doing these things too. So it all became a joke. What's dad doing? This is what I'm doing. And then I'd suddenly forget how to turn the volume up on my phone. And I think, what? this is, but I keep laughing, thinking this is ridiculous. How can you not remember how to turn the volume up on your phone? So it's just like your mind went into some kind of overwhelm and forgot the simplest of things. Nothing was working. And, and then when I was at work, suddenly things were changing. There were lots of restructures. There was lots of stabbing in the back. There was the need to be more technical and my brain wasn't ready for it and I didn't want to do it. I didn't find it interesting. So one, my brain was falling apart and I didn't think I had the ability it was one fear, I suppose. And two, I had no interest in it. And I remember I, I used to get into work really early because it suited me because I wasn't a good sleeper and I'd stay late. So I'd do really long hours. I remember my boss calling me up really late knowing that I'd been there since seven in the morning and it's like 630 at night and he kept asking me these things and he really winding me up and I thought do you know what I've had enough and the next day I put my house up for I hadn't even sold my home I hadn't even sold it because this is another home later on um and I remember waking up and I thought that's it I'm resigning and I didn't have a home didn't have nothing you know I was still had a mortgage to pay I, I had nothing that would allow me to financially cope with the situation so I thought I'm selling up and I'm getting rid of this job 
and I called up and I resigned. And in all my life, in from having a child, getting married, finding out I haven't got cancer, from all those different experiences, I have never felt so liberated in all my life when I've said, "I'm," I say, "I resign." And and afterwards, I remember because values are really important, and I was following so many values, and family is, is one of my values. And so I was doing everything in life, earning good money, getting a good job, working up the ladder, having a nice home, nice car, just to keep pleasing the family. And I couldn't stop doing that because they would look upon me in a way that they wouldn't respect. So I remember calling my mom and saying, look, I need you to back me up on this. I'm, re- I'm resigning and I'm selling my home and I'm going to go into rented and I'm starting a new path. And she, she, she went straight into the fence of, you can't do this, downsize, do this, do that. And then I went, mom, did you forget that I nearly died last year? And then she just didn't say another word. And it was almost like the tumor gave me permission to, to run my own life. So because all of a sudden people were like, yeah, you're right. Life's short. You can do what you like. But in the past, never, ever, even at the ripe old age of 44, I still had to comply. But now it's, no, do you know what? A year later, or now almost two years, you're alive. Do what you like. And so for me, it was a godsend, although it was horrendous. Of course. But the the post-traumatic stress disorder, it came in a year later, which was around the time just before I resigned as well. And I'd be driving in my car and suddenly I'd burst into tears as if I'd just been told. And I was working out what I'm going to do with my daughter. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do? How I've got to get everything sorted. And I'd be like, Abby, this is why are you behaving like this? And then again, back to the good old Google. And then it says, this is typical. Once you calm down and life slows down, this is typical. And if it goes on for more than six weeks, then you need help. And fortunately, it did pass. And I don't know whether that was a placebo that, you know, in my head, I thought, oh, we're only going to last six weeks. And so six weeks, it did pass. I have no idea. But I, but- do, I do see this all the time, especially with women where something, you know, huge happens, something very dramatic or, you know, um, uh, anything that can happen. And we go into survival, look after everyone else, look after our work, you know, and, yeah. and about a year later, it can hit like a truck. Yeah, it was awful. It was, like I said, it was like how I should have reacted. And then In I the thought moment. To myself, yeah. And then I thought to myself, is it because you didn't react how you should have reacted when it happened? I've got no idea. But then if you hadn't fought it and been positive, would you still be here? So That's what I'm wondering. Who, yeah, who the, knows? The reality is you're still here and that sort of prediction hasn't held up. Yeah, and I was actually told by a professor, Professor Fisher at the Marsden, that he doesn't know what it is and I'm an enigma. So for me, it was a miracle. It was a miracle that I that they found it because tumors don't hurt, but this one became uh, septic through a cyst attaching itself to it somehow, and they've got no idea how. Um, so I am an absolute enigma. If that had been left, I would have died because it was attacking everything, and I had a six-hour operation to remove all the lesions off all the things it was attacking. So it should have been cancerous. That uh, They wouldn't have taken away half my bowel if if they hadn't thought it wasn't cancerous because it was aggressive. But for some reason, it was an enigma. So for me, why wouldn't I change my life and give up on all the things that made me unhappy? So I look back on my life and I thought, do you know what? My life has been such an education because I've moved away from all the things that I've fallen into. And in the past, when I was in the abusive relationships, I think I heard a comment once from a family member who said she loves the drama. 
I mean, who would love that drama? But yes, some of it is self-inflicted. You, you do land in these roles somehow where you're needing to help other people. So you look for people subconsciously that need help so that you can help them. But unfortunately, they take away your energy to help them move forward. Yeah, so, that's a toxic sort of cycle. And is it? I yeah. mean, it seems very clear in this story that because of your adversity, you are now able to fully live life on, you know, by your rules in the way that you want to live it fully. I am. And you know what? I'm still doing things with fear. I mean, this is early days for me. I've, I've been working with the Alliance Support Coaching. Fortunately, I, I used to mediate with them. I also trained as a family mediator back last December, but unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be any work there. So, But then they opened up a family mediation. Possibly there might be an opening. When I did the mediation, they opened up the life coaching uh, for the antisocial behavior victims um, some year later, which I fell into. So it's almost like I'm doing things with fear because I don't have a structure and a definite path. However, I seem to be landing in places which are doing okay. Things can get better. Obviously, work needs to come in for me to stay on this path rather than go back to a nine to five office job, which would hurt, but at least I tried. So for me, being courageous has been the biggest strength for me. That's shown me how strong I am to be courageous because you can't, you need strength to be courageous. So I gave up my job. But it's not the absence of fear, is it? Fear can still be there. It can still be present, but courageousness is just going anywhere. Yeah, you just got to work through it and you just got to do it scared. Just do it scared, yeah, that's what I do. (laughs) Oh yeah, every now and then where I do plans and forecasts and look ahead and I do think, oh dear, this isn't where I expected to be at this point when I started this journey. But I think think from the tumour, it's taught me to be patient because – I'm not a patient person. I I want things to be done now and I want it to be done quickly and I want results. And the tumor made me slow down. And I don't think I could have gone through the last year and a half so far, well, in May it'll be two years, um, without being taught how to be patient. So when I said to my mom, when I found out I had a tumor, why are they doing this to me? I think the journey was learning to be patient. I mean, I can think of better ways to learn to be patient. Oh, yes. Um, but also, also there is a theme of you having a victim mentality through right from when you were very young. And if anything, yeah. this could make, could, could exacerbate that and be like, I am totally a victim of the universe, of whatever, my health, yeah. my body. Um, but it seems like you have a different perspective on that as well. A hundred percent that I'm definitely no longer a victim. But it took a while to pull away from it because I think... As I pulled away from it as I got older, I also had this desire to help people, so which then put me in the back in the victim role, which wasn't where I wanted to be, hence the reason why I've moved away from both the relationships. It was me that ended them both. So I had the strength to pull away, but I also had that victim mentality to go in there with the desire to help. So, yeah, it, it's like a double-edged sword. So for me, coaching and hypnotherapy and the EMDR, it, it's helping people, which means I don't have that need to take it into a relationship because I'm using it as, as a work ethic. And you're really coming from a personal story place as far as helping people that have trauma. I can, I, you know, I can just feel that the most powerful coaches and therapists are ones who have some story and a passion for showing people that there's another way to live. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. I, I do believe that you need to have experienced 
some of it to be able to work with people. I mean, I was just speaking to a friend the other day who who has severe anxiety. And I said to her, you know, I'll never understand what that heart palpitation feeling is because my anxiety doesn't show in that way. So uh, I find it difficult when people say, you know, my heart's palpitating, I can't breathe, and I come up and having a panic attack. I can't resonate with that because... I think when people say to me, oh, that's because you're anxious, and I I almost take offense to it because I think, don't give me another label. But really, when you look back, I show anxiety in lots of other ways. I, I, I don't sleep. I've got to do things 100 miles per hour. You know, I have anxiety. I think we all have anxiety, but I don't display it in ways which I would see as typical, which is what people say to me with the heart palpitation and feeling like they're going to explode. So it's knowing your, yourself a little bit. Um, so, so we're coming to the end of our time. Uh, I feel like there's so many different ways that we, we could go with this. Um, yeah. I mean, what advice would you give to somebody who is in the midst of trauma or is experiencing something that's quite challenging? Is there anything that you would do differently in order to maybe prevent that, that burnout a year later? Or uh, what would you say to people experiencing their own rock bottom? Do you know, the four doctors that I swear get us all through are Dr. Quiet, Dr. Diet, Dr. Exercise, and Dr. Laughter. If you've got all four of them in your lives, you're equipped. But as soon as we go down, our diet changes. Our diet changes. We have food hangovers. We can't exercise. We don't want to go out because we don't feel good about ourselves. And it's difficult to get quiet times because we're in our own minds. So for me, it's strengthening having quiet time. It's making sure 80% of my diet is giving me nutritious because I'm not going to put the wrong fuel in my car because it's going to break down. And to exercise, even if I'm going to the gym and I'm not really there, get out. Be, be near movement, fresh air, wind, rain, storm, water, movement, just not being static, not, not sitting down and not sitting in your four walls do one small thing that's different to what you did yesterday if that just means washing your hair or smiling at yourself even if it's fake when you look in the mirror do it one small thing i love that and i I suppose i would just add the the connection element so um having someone or some people in your life that you know can can build you up or are sort of the healthy type of people rather than the toxic people Oh, definitely. Negative people just drain you. And if you have a positive outlook, which I genuinely do, and so people will be attracted to you. So they will drain it. So look out for those people. Are they giving me something back as I'm giving them? And if all they're doing is taking and draining, then reassess. Should they be on your stage? Look at your stage like the theatre. Put all the people around you that benefit you and tie them around you tightly. Put the people that aren't that important slightly beside on the stage, but they're still there. And all the people that bring you down, put them in the audience so that you're aware that they're there and you can keep an eye on them, make sure they keep their distance, but you don't let them disappear because that allows your mind to go over time wondering what they're doing and where they are. What a perfect um, analogy. Abby, thank you so much, Abby, for being so vulnerable, for telling us your story. I mean, it's amazing. I take so much inspiration. Uh, it's a privilege to, to know you uh, and to know what you've been through and because I know how powerful you are in the work that you do as well, and I, I've learned so much. Thank you for your time. Thank you, and ditto to you. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening. If something helped you today, please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone. 
I know that for me, isolation kept me stuck much longer than I needed to be. So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on, as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website, petravelsboer.com, for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.